Welcome. Welcome to Mystical Musings, October 18th, 2015, here in the Mile High City of Denver in the Art of Life Gallery with Myron McClellan and me, Lawrence Phillips. We are here today in the Art District on Santa Fe Drive, the hub of the Denver art scene with the largest concentration of art galleries in Colorado. Those of us who identify as spiritual but not religious, who are non-sectarian, non-denominational, non-doctrinaire, are the fastest growing demographic of the sacred communities in America. Thank you for joining us today, creating our community of mystics, people finding unity with God, the breath of life, the gentle whisper, the great spirit. As a community of mystics who know beyond the intellect, spiritual apprehension of truths. I am because we are. I am because we are one, celebrating body and spirit. Today's spirit portal, the art of life, a mystic perspective. As beauty is in the beholder's eye, so it is appreciation that makes art, art. Speaking of a quite different, for some people, art, the Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said of pornography, I know it when I see it. There is about art a knowing, a resonance, a sense of connection. Let us not get mired in definitions. Art is art if the artist or the perceiver deems it to be art. Any of us mystics can find a sense of spiritual experiential art in the mundane with the practice of mindfully chopping wood and carrying water as well as in the sublime. There is a fundamental sense that art is life. As mystics, one of our job descriptions is unifying with the great spirit and is also transforming suffering into peace. The union with any of the myriad facets of the divine and the spiritual alchemy of transforming pain and suffering into love and joy are the great mystic arts of life. Personally, I got to practice that mystic art of life this summer. I've been tested with my 86-year-old mama, with her falling, breaking a vertebra, being hospitalized and now no longer capable of standing or weight-bearing or walking, going into a nursing home in Texas. As many of you know, this has been a very difficult transition for mom, for our family, for me as her eldest child and her power of attorney and executor. The mystic art of transforming suffering has been and is greatly enabled by the love of my partner, by my family, by our friends, and our community. The sangha, the community, is essential 
for spiritual art to resonate, to connect, and be effective, sharing beauty. Art is something I enjoy, but not necessarily always. Art is both external, including music and poetry, prose, nature, sculpture, dance, and internal. Internal. A wonderful coalescing of our primary functions of sensing, feeling, thinking, moving, and spiriting. Sensing, feeling, thinking, moving, and spiriting. Our primary functions. A coalescence that pleases, that makes me happy, makes me expand and deepen. A dynamic coalescing that is beautiful to me, beautiful to my senses, to my sense of spirit. A beautiful and wondrous coalescing that very often integrates suffering, integrates grief by finding the gift of gratitude integrates fear by finding wisdom, integrates anger by finding empowerment. Beautiful art evokes from us the best of life in the contemplative moments of mystic union. And so the art of life is fundamentally dynamic, fleeting and eternal, evocative of the ever-expanding human spirit writ large and humbly in this moment, here, now, with all of us. The art of life is often revealed in the difficult moments. What do we do with the sometimes onslaught of the external world with its massive sufferings, and especially now in the cyber world, personal and collective, our particular contemporary challenge? How do we make art of life in the face of the tsunami of global darkness and the myriad little challenges of everyday life? From a contemporary mystic's perspective, the vehicles for creating art in life involve practices and rituals, such as bringing art to relationship. For example, from great-grandfather Rumi, every time your spouse says something stupid, Make your eyes light up as if you've just heard something brilliant. <laughs> Myron just said you didn't hear. It works well. <laughs> hmm. And lastly, one of the great mystic art practices is what the Buddhists call Tanglen. The practice of Tanglen is done to develop our compassion and our ability to be present for our own suffering and the suffering of others. It is also a practice of great kindness that opens up our whole being to the presence of suffering and our willingness to transform alienation into compassion through the energy of mercy and the cultivation of openness. So if you're willing to practice this in the moment, great. And if you're not, then just sit and breathe. Think of someone for whom you feel anger or fear or grief, sadness. And as you imagine this person, if you wish to participate, Allow yourself to inhale those emotions, the feelings of anger, grief, fear. Take it in in the inhalation. Receive it in, but receive it in not how we tend to express it with faces tight and constricted, but open, chest open, breath large. You're receiving in the inhales and the suffering at the same time. You're just taking it in openly, softly, without constraint, without resistance, without denial. You're just receiving in the suffering. And then on the exhale, be the alchemist that we all are, especially as mystics. And transforming those difficult emotions 
into love, peace, joy. Receiving in the suffering as you're triggered by thinking of this person and exhaling in the transformative moment, love. Namaste.
15 years, Myron and I have been together, and every single time I hear him play, it touches my heart. Thank you, Lord. One way the art of life is created when we mystics transform darkness into the welcoming light. We call upon our alchemical functions as mystics to generate love. There appears to be so much darkness in the world right now and so many examples <clears throat> of seemingly increasing darknesses arising each day. Seems like each week, almost every day, there's a mass shooting in America and some act of maiming, killing terrorism somewhere in the world. There's nuclear proliferation. Politics appears not only dark, but also profoundly polarized, deeply dysfunctional, and even corrupt. Climate change is bringing extreme weather events with California drying up and burning up, while South Carolina is drenched and flooded. Just when you think it couldn't get worse, the intractable conflicts in the Middle East appear to be worsening. Animal extinction globally is accelerating. Seas are deteriorating with massive poisonous algae blooms fish die-offs, coral destruction, and plastic pollution on scales never before seen. And oh, the darkness, there is the Trump phenomenon. <laughs> there is the devastation of the bees worldwide. July was the hottest month in history. In this time of increasing water scarcity, it takes approximately 100 gallons of water to produce one ounce of beef. And we, as a culture, eat some 25 billion pounds of beef each year. The average holding period for a stock in the stock market in 1945 was four years. In 2000 was two months. In 2011, it was 22 seconds. There is the apparent decrease of empathy amongst chronic smartphone users, especially video gamers, according to a recent book by an MIT professor. So let's talk about something cheerful. I nominate the apocalypse. <laughs> not, the apoc not the apocalypse of destruction, as can so easily be surmised from the foregoing list of challenges, but the apocalypse of knowledge, as it is translated from the original Greek, a lifting of the veil, a perspective, not so much for this pessy mystic, but for this opti mystic. There are some really good candidates for positive incipient evidence of mass tra transformation this month. A lifting of the veil, a positive apocalypse, as it were, including radical changes afoot with lending outside of banks or credit cards via the lending club through the Internet, which matches borrowers with lenders directly at rates of interest that are reasonable. Extraordinary current advances in medicine that allow for revealing easy and inexpensive diagnostics from a single drop of blood. The awesome growth of Apple Music Technologies, for better or for worse, so that we might very well have all the world listening to the same song at the same time, a global artistic unifying event unthinkable just a little while ago. And in June, there was the judicial confirmation from the Supreme Court of gay marriage nationwide. Whew, never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. And for positive evidence, it is worth noting that the ambassador to America from France is gay, and that there are six openly gay ambassadors from America to various countries around the world. And from a most unexpected institution, there is Pope Francis a most surprising ray of light and love, acceptance and mercy, so deeply needed in the world today. With the Uber app, which allows us to rent a stranger's car as a taxi, wildly proliferating, there are to be expected imitators. So from the sublime to the necessary mundane, you've heard of Airbnb, which um, uh, rents one's home, or you can rent a home somewhere else in the world. Well, there is now Air P, &P allowing strangers to rent lavatories for personal use. <laughs> Internet is getting stranger and stranger, <laughs> curiouser and curiouser, this looking glass world. But the candidate this month for incipient evidence of mass positive transformation is, for the third time in as many years, 
but now for different reasons. The almost worldwide ubiquity of the cell and or smartphone. Recent, recently, the co-chair of the Gates Foundation, the largest philanthropic organization in history, already having given away in 15 years over $30 billion, the co-chair, Melinda Gates, talked about the innovation of mobile money via cell phones as one extraordinary example of how women have been empowered to run their own lives while transforming male-dominated traditions in remote rural areas such as Tanzania, Kenya, the Philippines, and Bangladesh. <clears throat> the growing transformative power of the cell phone, especially the smartphone, is revealed in the recent crisis of people migrating to Europe, escaping from the conflagrations in the Middle East. Upon recent, recent arrival in Greece over the Aegean Sea from Turkey, just as the ro rubber boat was beached, let me just stop for a second. You're on a rubber boat, sometimes at night, crammed. You're escaping horrors, going to a place that you're not even sure, but you just know you got to go north. Some of those countries beckoning and some of them not. Must be really frightening. Refugees are desperate to do two things, message their families and take a selfie. <laughs> These fleeing people rely on their phones to make a passage to a better life. They rely on apps like WhatsApp to communicate with family and friends back home. They navigate border crossings via Google Maps and Facebook Messenger. Their ordeal is documented on Instagram. A smartphone is often the only possession they carry. The Middle East exodus is the first mass migration happening in the fully digital age, which is changing how such tribulations are now unfolding. With each border crossing, the migrants race to find a new signal, new local SIM cards, another public Wi-Fi network. Says one migrant in a recent Time Magazine article, if it were five years ago, my family might be thinking what's happening to me, and I'd be wondering what's happening to them. But now, thank God for this technology. Thank God for this technology. Many refugees are using apps to find the best and least dangerous pathways to proceed. The fleeing people are finding out via apps that the camps in Hungary are abysmal and thus know to go a different route toward Germany and other more hospitable locations. In the boats at sea, the immigrants often wrap their phone in plastic some putting the phone inside of balloons with SOS pre-programmed messages to be sent along with the group's exact GPS coordinates at the moment that something would go wrong. As soon as they land, the asylum seekers start taking selfies as a way to document and remember their odyssey of travail. More than the tents dispensing food and water and temporary shelter, the tent most in demand is the one for power and Wi-Fi. The art of life is doing the best we can in the most difficult of circumstances. Greenpeace confirms that for many, the need to communicate is as dire as the need for basic supplies. And thus we have a mass heart, the word of which obviously includes art. Thus we have a mass heart resonance on the beaches as they land in southern Europe and around the world as we watch, a resonance and a knowing, a connection, the vibration of which we often call an art of life. But now, on a magnified transformative level, through the remarkable empowerment and connectedness of the technology of the phone, this month's incipient evidence for mass positive transformation. Ah. <sighs> Shalom, Christ be with you. Assalamu alaikum. Adieu. Adios. Aloha. Namaste. We honor the place in you wherein the entire universe dwells. We honor the place in you which is of love, of truth, of light and dark, 
and of peace. As you are in that place in you, and we are in that place in us, in this present eternal moment with the art of life unfolding, we are one. Namaste. We took our cue, obviously, for what we wanted to do the first musing on from the name of the gallery. And um, as I was thinking about it, life is art, I wondered what would I do without music? What would I do without great paintings, beautiful buildings, magnificent epic poetry, beautiful dance. I would not want to be alive. So for me, art is life. And I find that art everywhere. Everywhere I look, there is something beautiful and someone beautiful that is touching my heart deeply. I was once, years and years ago, in the Louvre in Paris, and in the room where the um, Mona Lisa was, the huge lines. So I turned to my right, and there were some paintings by Rembrandt. There was a painting of his called Self-Portrait as St. Matthew. I was totally captivated by this painting. And I actually felt I was there with St. Matthew, and I felt I was being blessed, really receiving divine blessings from being in the company of that great art And I stayed there and forgot about the Mona Lisa. (laughs) I stayed there until they asked me to move on. (laughs) What was it about that? There became no separation from, from with me and the painting. There was no separation. I was that, and I had I was communing with it. I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't analyzing it. I was being with it. And art invites us to be with it. It captures us. It takes us into ecstasy, into bliss. And it shows us huge other dimensions of our humanity. And the, the absolute vastness of our awareness and our ability to love. Often when Lawrence and I are at the symphony, we will be so overcome with the presence of God that we sit agape in that mystical energy with no words whatsoever to describe the experience. It happened so many times that Lawrence finally said, this is P-O-G, power of God. So when we were in that experience, we whispered to each other, (laughs) P-O-G. We just had the great privilege of hearing Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist and mystic. And it was in um, a room that accommodated several hundred, not thousands. And every seat was filled. We got our tickets half a year in advance. They sold out the first hour. And he so plays from his heart and from his knowing. And he makes such beautiful sounds on that cello that you are just in a place of grace and wonder and profound joy. He played all of the Bach solo cello sonatas 
and you could hear, could have heard a pen drop. No one coughed, no one moved around, no one even sneezed. It was an experience of sublimity. In fact, that's what the person sitting next to me said, sublime. It ennobles us when we're in the presence of great art. It ennobles us and it teaches us that there is so much more to life than what we can describe. And as I said in the invitation today, it is through art that the presence of God makes itself manifest. Not through treatises and not through theology and not through philosophy, but through the arts. That's the way we get to know the divine. So that the great Sufi scholar and mystic Hazrat Inayat Khan said, music is the picture of our beloved. And it takes us again into a profound silence, profound silence which is what we seek as mystics. And it also takes us out of our thinking mind because there's so much going on in a piece of music you can't just think in a linear way because you're, you're being expanded by all of the different voices going on. As my great master teacher John Cage says, it is not possible to think if you're really listening. And it really is true. And that's one of the reasons that great art is a mystical art. And when we read the words of the artist, we know it's, they're mystics. They're some form of mystics. And as we go along the mystical path, we keep wanting to recharge and to expand and to know more and have our heart open more, have our, ourselves bring more and more beautiful energy into the world. And that's why we keep going to hear concerts and to see beautiful paintings or go look at beautiful architecture or watch a wonderful dance. On television this week, Yo-Yo Ma played while Misty Copeland, the prima ballerina of the New York Ballet, danced. We sat in stunned silence. It was so beautiful. Now we know that this beauty and this art has been with us since the beginning. Because of the cave paintings in France, if you look at those cave paintings, it's not like art progresses. It's as beautiful and as sophisticated in that cave as it ever gets. So really art for most of us is what sustains life. And in this I'm talking about the, the poetry, the amazing novels, the great symphonies, and the masterful paintings. But the word art is used more freely by the Zen Buddhists. For the Zen Buddhists, the way to enlightenment is through the arts. Now, there are seven arts, and I, I talk about them. I think I could be able to express what happens to me when I'm in a condition that is brought on by the presence of beautiful things. The seven arts are painting. The painting is called Sumie painting, and it's a very thin paper and a wide black brush. And so you have to paint spontaneously, or you poke a hole in the paper, right? So it is to move out of the conscious mind into the intuitive mind. The poetry, especially by Basho, is called haiku. 
And it's not, even though it's a very strict rules, Basho and others say it simply comes. You can't sit down and figure it out. And it's so simple, like the legs of the crane have become short in the summer rains. Just such a beautiful image, you know, with so few words. And it directs us to see the beauty in everything, which ultimately is the gift of art. I was at a concert in New York City, my uh, mentor, John Cage, and he wrote a piece that actually, by chance, didn't have any sounds. The famous piece now called Four Minutes and 38 Seconds. I think, I'm sure about the four minutes, but in any case. So the David Tudor, who played the piano with John's works and introduced a lot of his works, came down and sat at a, at a toy piano. So we're all waiting to hear what this next piece would be. And as we waited, four minutes is a long time. And what happened to me and some of the other people I was with is that you begin to hear the air conditioner, you begin to hear the sounds from everyone, you begin to hear the breathing, right? And when I left the concert, it was in New York City, when I left the concert and I went out to the streets of New York, it felt like I had, I had entered a great cosmic orchestra. Every sound seemed so beautiful to me. And the contrapuntal part of it, the many things happening at the same time, expanded my awareness way beyond the linear mind. Way beyond the linear mind. And that's one of the points of Zen arts. Another art is the art of archery. Now, we don't think of that as an art, but if you are a master at being an archer in the Zen way, it is beautifully an art. So what happens? The Zen uh, archer has a little bow and arrow above the head, and as he practices, as this is his way to the divine, he becomes infallible. He can't miss. It's said that even if he places the target on the other side of the hill, he goes back to his original place, he'll hit the bullseye every time. And that happens because in the Buddhist language, he becomes the Buddha, the bow and the arrow become the Buddha, the target becomes the Buddha, and then in that oneness, everything comes together. And the oneness we can feel in the presence of great art, knowing that we're captivated by it, and we go not only to the non-thinking part of our mind, but we go to oneness. We really do. The other arts are swordsmanship, which the samurai used, and it has that principle of martial arts, which is that what you're looking at is what determines what you do. It's like the inner game of tennis. Remember that book? So in the inner game of tennis, the guy said, which is a totally Zen book, and he talks about how if you watch what the ball is doing and it's coming to you, and you don't think about it, without thinking about it, you will hit the ball. And you'll put it where you want it to be. And I, when this book was popular, it was way long ago, 70s, I think. In any case, I remember seeing on uh, television some um, expert, it was the, the author actually, and the host or hostess of this program had never played tennis. And so he had her hit the balls and he said, okay, now don't think, just watch it. Don't think about it yourself, don't think about anything else. And she hit it to target every time she did. So it's that also that, that oneness and that, that amazing discipline of staying attuned and aligned. The other Zen arts are tea ceremony, 
And the tea ceremony is, is quite remarkable uh, in that um, you meditate before you go to the tea, the tea ceremony, but everything is so ritualized. It is like an amazing dance that the master does. Amazing dance. And you drink the tea, and then there's a break for conversation, and then you go back into this exalted state. And there was nothing outside that tea house for me. Nothing. But the master and the tea. And it all seemed to be one thing. And another, I think this is the, oh, two, two others, actually. One is Zen gardening. If you send Zen gardens, they're the height of simplicity. And also flower arranging. That's the same art. And when I see an arrangement by Peg or by Victoria, I am absolutely captivated because it's all so simple and so pure that it you can't talk about it, but you can sit and wonder and look at it. I was at a Zen monastery in California called Tassajara. They're known for the cookbook. And uh, my friend Francesca and I were in a hot pool inside, and it was all clear, white walls, everything was white, except they had one vase with a leaf and a flower. And when we were, we, all we did was look at that. We did not speak once while we were in that. Again, that, that amazing sense of oneness and that sense of belongingness and that, that sense of simplicity. Now, Zen Buddhism is all about simplicity. Their saying is that salvation lies in everything, in everything, everyday things of life. So when we bring simplicity to it and when we bring our attention to it and not think about it, not analyze it, and just be there with it, it is an exalted state, and it happens over and over and over again in the presence of that greatness. The seventh art is meditation. And the meditation that they do, it's listening to the breath, right, which we know, just listening to the breath, and then watching how things arise and then they fall. They arise and then they go away. That's the Zen meditation. You watch your thoughts begin and you watch them go away. And when I was in Tibet many years ago, 20 years ago, we were in this beautiful valley called the Dingri Valley. And... Um, it was a huge plain with Himalayas in the back and it was all the colors so amazing. And for those of you who have been to Tibet, you will know it is vast beyond anything you can believe. And the Rockies are sort of like foothills there. It is vast. So I'm looking at the mountains, at the Himalaya, and I'm watching clouds go by and I thought no wonder this is where Buddhism start, started with its doctrine of samsara things arrive, things go away so you don't get attached to the clouds at all you watch them come you watch them go what you're captivated by are the mountains which are there totally still still mountains. And so in that sacred place of wonder, joy, and silence, it is awesome how the soul is nurtured, how the soul is fed. And this is really what art does. Nature does it too. So that's how we take care of our soul. Now, ultimately, 
for the Zen Buddhists and for others. The lesson is about seeing the beauty in everything. When we get captivated by, as we did the Brahms Symphony a couple of weeks ago at the Symphony Hall, everything looked beautiful. Everything was filled with this golden light. And even when you walk out and you're walking to your car, everything is beautiful. And that's what the mystic aspires to, is to see the beauty in everything. So we train our senses, and the Zen Buddhists train our senses so that everything becomes a work of art. That is, it takes us into silence, it touches our heart, it expands us, and it ennobles us. And the other thing that participation in the art brings about is the creative impulse. The creative impulse. When you are in situations that bring forth the mystical appreciation of the music or the art, what arises from that is a desire to create the art yourself. So in my case, that's principally playing the piano, composing and playing the piano. So after we heard a brilliant piano recital, when Lawrence goes to bed, I go to Steinway. <laughs> <laughs> Because I want to, I want to create out of that. And as you know, we as human beings are here to express ourselves. We're here to learn perfect self-expression. That's one way of talking about the meaning of life, creating perfect self-expression. We are creators and we're co-creators. And we're always co-creating. So all of us are co-creating this moment. When we're in the moment, we are co-creating if our minds are open and our hearts are open. And that creative impulse we send out in prayer, in meditation, and looking at our meditation as a work of art. I know carpenters who look at what they do as a work of art because they're so concentrated on what they're doing that they become one with the hammer and the nail. And I have many mystical carpenter friends. And that's their practice. And that's another thing that is good about the Zen Buddhist arts, is that you can be an artist cooking. You can be an artist dressing. You can be an artist driving. You can be an artist um, lovemaking. There's no end to the creativity and the art. And so, as we have in the last, since the early 70s, as a group of people on the planet been breaking out from the left brain and the rules and the, the, the move toward making things conform, the opposite of art, the opposite of creativity, we have had to bite hard to break out of that and make ourselves free so the art brings us freedom too a sense of absolute freedom because we're not constrained and we know that and so I could not live without art. I couldn't. So for me, art is life is literally true. Art without life is existence. And I want the full thing. I want the life. I want the moistness, the richness, the depth. And whether it's joy or sorrow, everything is absolutely beautiful. 
like the Brahms Fourth Symphony, the second movement is all about sorrow, and it's so beautiful, so beautiful. And we can come to see everything in our life as beautiful, and we can even decide to create our lives, just our everyday life, as a work of art. So, so let's go create our lives as a work of art. All right. Namaste.
The art of life often evokes for me an experience of the sublime. I find the sublime in Myron's mystical piano musings. I find such wonder or near approximations in our garden, the photos of which we share with you each month so that our Sangha community can experience our mystic sanctuary, an important part of my spiritual practice dedicated to my beloved, Myron. I also find the splendid and sacred poetry an experience that expands and deepens my relationship with God, the great spirit, the gentle whisper. We have today some sacred poetry to complete the musings. Our experience of art and of the sublime is mediated through our experience of our embodiment. So I would gently invite you to open the portal of your senses by uncrossing limbs connected and continuously deepening the breathing, softening the face, especially at the jaw, so that we are deeply listening with our whole bodies. from the Christian music, uh, mystic avatar of the natural world, St. Francis. I once spoke to my friend, an old squirrel, about the sacraments. He got so excited and ran into a hollow in his tree and came back holding some acorns, an owl feather, and a ribbon he had found. And I just smiled and said, yes, dear, you understand. Everything imparts his grace. From great-grandfather Rumi, on a day when the wind is perfect, the sail just needs to open and the world is full of beauty. Today, is such a day. The word here, success, is from Ralph Waldo Emerson and for the mystic who honors throughout millennia the power of the breath, success just as easily can be the art of life. Emerson says, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, that is success. From Hafiz, one of history's greatest lyrical geniuses. God revealed a sublime truth to the world when he sings, I am made whole by your life. Each soul, each soul completes me. What is all this world has seen from art? The shadow more true and glorious there than in the cage where there often is talk of right and wrong. And lastly, from one of history's great mystics, Meister Eckhart. 
who must God have made love to in order to have given birth to all this sound, to the sacred spectrum of color, sense, and music from the wind's body and existence's plea for mercy, that plea for the real mercy, unbearable joy. All beings are words of God, his music, and his art. Namaste. Namaste.